This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Ken Benzinger is an investigative journalist and author of the book, Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. When describing Ken's book, David Hershey of the Wall Street Journal said it is, quote, a gripping white-collar crime thriller that, in its scope and human drama, ranks with some of the best investigative business books of the past 30 years, end quote. Ken's book is the culmination of years' worth of work that shines a light on decades' worth of corruption on a global scale. And this interview with Ken is a crash course in global football corruption, but more specifically, America's role in it. During this conversation, we discuss the very important differences between the American government and American soccer's government. We also talked about some red flags, such as international friendlies on American soil, the structure of Major League Soccer, and relationships between key decision makers in American soccer and in FIFA. Ken's perspective as an investigative journalist with no ties to any American soccer entities is like a breath of fresh air. In previous episodes, you might have heard me say that 343 has been calling bullshit on U.S. soccer shenanigans since 2009. And you might have also heard me say that is the reason why I first gravitated towards 343. All of that is true. And since starting this podcast, I've never been told what to cover or how to cover it. I just go for it. I've had people on the show that I agree with. And I've had people on the show that I do not agree with. But most importantly, no matter who comes on this show, this podcast has become an arena to discuss American soccer without a filter. And I am really, really proud of that. This episode with Ken is also something that I am really proud of. It's a real conversation about the real problems that continue to plague the sport and get little to no airtime in the mainstream soccer media here in the United States. So I'm thankful for guys like Ken and the work that he does. And if you enjoy this podcast with Ken and the information that he provides, I urge you to support his work and buy his book. And if you enjoy this episode with Ken, and if you enjoy all of the conversations and topics and all of the education that 343 provides for free, please consider becoming a member of our premium coaching education membership. That membership program helps to fund this podcast and allows us to keep calling bullshit and to keep bringing guys like Ken on the show. If you are already a premium member, thank you so much. And if you are not, we hope that you join us soon. You can find more information about the membership program and all the benefits that come along with it by visiting 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 343, the word coaching, all spelled out, dot com. All right, here we go. I hope that you enjoy this episode of the 343 Podcast with Ken Benzinger. Okay, let's let's start with you know, a little bit about who you are and and you know why I'm 
why I'm interviewing you or why you think I'm interviewing you at least. Um, because, uh, yeah, I think that's a good place to start. So maybe an inter- introduction. Okay. Uh, well, my name is Ken Bensinger. I'm a investigative reporter at BuzzFeed News in, uh, I live in Los Angeles. Um, and, um, uh, I've most recently published a book, um, about the U S, uh, investigation of um, corruption within international soccer. That book, Red Card, was published um, a few months ago, and um, every day it continues to feel relevant as um, soccer continues to prove itself to be full of scandal on a rolling weekly basis. Yeah, it's like a never-ending roller coaster, man. Yeah. yeah. What What made you write this book? Um, well, I'm um, as I said, I'm an investigative reporter, and I've... Um, I've covered a variety of topics and really my background isn't in covering sports. Um, uh, I was in business and uh, primarily I started at the Wall Street Journal many years ago and um, was in the business section at the Los Angeles Times. Um, but uh, every once in a while, I would sprinkle in a sports story when I got the opportunity. Um, and in 2014, just before the Brazil World Cup, um, I got the opportunity to write a profile of an American soccer official um, who's known uh, who's named Chuck Blazer. Um, who's no longer alive, but um, when he was alive, was uh, probably the most powerful American soccer official ever, um, and um, one that was enormously, enormously corrupt, um, and also quite a character. And um, I wrote this big profile of him, getting a sense that he was corrupt, but really only having scratching the surface of the depths of his corruption. Um, and that ran um, in just the, sort of the first days, or right before the first day of the of that World Cup. Um, and then I moved on to other topics that had nothing to do with, with soccer or sport of any kind um, until a year later when um, on May 27th, 2015, uh, the whole world learned that the U.S. had been for years running a secret investigation of all this corruption and had arrested all, um, numerous FIFA officials in Zurich in an early morning raid. Uh, and within days of that, uh, it came out that Chuck Blazer had been a key and, and um, one of the most important cooperators secretly helping the case. Um, as a result, I suddenly looked like uh, I knew everything about Chuck Blazer <laughs> and about soccer corruption. Um, when it, of course it was as big piece of news to me as to everyone else. Um, and so there was a lot of interest in what I knew and, and people sort of came to me asking me if I was interested in doing more. And um, ultimately I, I decided to, to take the leap and try to write a book out of it. Oh, okay. Now, now where do we go from here? <laughs> uh, one of the things that, that has popped up in my, in, in my brain already two or three times as you've been talking about what the book that you've written and the, and the article that you, that you wrote about Chuck Blazer, you've mentioned the U.S. and, and how the U.S. kind of led the quest to clean up the global game of, of soccer or football. And I want to clarify yeah. maybe something, or maybe you can help me kind of better understand what you mean by U S. So was it on behalf of U S soccer or was it U S like the government or can, can you maybe explain a little bit about what you mean when you say the words U S yeah. When I mean the U S I mean the U S uh, in, in the largest red level, I mean the United States government and specifically the department of justice. Um, I do not mean United States soccer federation. Um, and nor do I mean any sort of any entity directly associated with soccer uh, per se. 
it's important to note that the U.S. Soccer Federation, um, as with every other soccer federation uh, in the world, um, uh, is an independent entity. Its government control FIFA's bylaws specifically um, uh, require that soccer federations in the different countries be independent and not controlled by the government. And that's the case with U.S. Soccer Federation, which doesn't um, even receive any funding from the federal government. So um, it's entirely independent. Um, and doesn't doesn't you know it sometimes interfaces with the government, but it is not a government agency. And um, the Department of Justice, on the other hand, is very much a government agency and is really you know um, the the arm of this government when it comes to questions of law and order and other matters. And in this case, when we talk about the U.S. Uh, cleaning up soccer, we mean um, the Attorney General, we mean the FBI, we mean prosecutors at the Department of Justice. That's what we're talking about. And I th- I think that's pretty important for people to understand because it can it can a- appear that U.S. soccer was kind of the good guy in, in in some cases. I know that some articles have kind of been framed, and I've left the article you know kind of thinking or getting the feeling like oh like you know U.S. soccer was was the one that was trying to clean everything up just by the way the people that are named and the way that they're kind of presented as characters in the story. Yeah, but the the more and more I think about it, it. it that's not necessarily the case and it's not necessarily saying, you know, that U S soccer is to blame in, in any of it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, but I think it's important for people to understand the, the role between U S soccer and then the separate entity, which is the department of justice. Yeah. I mean, that, that's very clear. Um, uh, that U S soccer was not in, you know, was not involved in, in, in creating this case or nor was it pushing for this case. And I think, for the most part, I had no idea if this case was even happening. Wow. The whole world was in the dark about this, including U.S. soccer. Um, you know, Chuck Blazer was not an official of U.S. soccer. He was a, an official of CONCACAF, which is the confederation that oversees soccer in all of North America, Central America, and the Caribbean. Um, and he was the secretary general, the general secretary of that organization. So he was sort of the, you could think of it as the chief operating officer or even the CEO of of, um, of soccer in that continental region um but u.s soccer was not something he had a position on for many years he was a vice president of u.s soccer in 1984 85 86 and that was it he never again had a position in u.s soccer um and i think it's also important the point you touch on um to note that this that the fact that this case happened from the u.s government um and was directed by the government does not imply necessarily that u.s soccer is clean um, uh, there's nowhere that U.S. soccer has necessarily been given a clean bill of health. And there are certainly many critics of U.S. soccer um, who have choice things to say about how it's run and, and what it does. And certainly it's been through its own turmoil of different kinds over the years. It hasn't really had a major corruption scandal, but um, many of the people involved in it were intimate friends um, and close to some of the most corrupt figures in the world of, uh, in global soccer. Yeah, I know some of the, some of the most, uh, most frequently used pictures of Chuck Blazer um, tend to be his photos with some of American soccer's current, you know, big, big players, um, right. You know, presidents of, of American leagues and presidents of governing bodies. So it's, it's just kind of ironic that, you know, this guy who is the mastermind behind so much corruption was, I don't know if mastermind is the right way to to describe him. Maybe you could correct me on that, but you know, involved in so much corruption was so deeply connected to some of the, the key 
decision makers in American soccer. So it just kind of it makes you wonder, I guess. Well, that's actually one of the things that's hung over this, you know, since since it became public is were people within the sort of uh, hierarchy of U.S. soccer aware of some of the corruption going on? And it's it's hard to believe they couldn't um, at least have suspected it. Um, you know, people like Sunil Gulati, who was president of U.S. soccer for many years, basically came up under Chuck Blazer. You know, he he met Chuck Blazer when he was still, I think, in college or even younger and in youth soccer and sort of the. He was in Connecticut and Chuck Blazer was in Westchester County and they met in that sort of in the all-star world. And um, and then in different positions they each had over the years, Chuck Blazer was often there helping Gulati out. And um, at one point, uh, Gulati even borrowed office space from Chuck Blazer inside the CONCACAF offices. Um, so, you know, he's spending an enormous amount of time with Blazer. He's receiving uh, professional favors and advancements from Blazer. Um, and, you know, they're traveling all over the world together. Uh, it, it's possible he completely didn't see anything, but one has to wonder really what might have what might have happened behind closed doors. One of the more interesting interviews I've ever recorded was with Rocco Camiso, the current owner of the New York Cosmos and, and a you know very successful businessman. And he grew up in, in the on the East Coast in the soccer scene, very heavily involved. And during, I think it was my first interview with Rocco, he mentioned, or he brought up a, a story about Sunil and Chuck kind of tag teaming uh, uh, an effort to remove Rocco from the youth soccer scene. At, I, think, I believe it was in the mid 80s. And so, you know, you fast forward 25, 30 years and, and Rocco's in court against U.S. soccer and Sunil Galati specifically, I guess. And it's and it's like you you see like this wasn't something that just happened overnight. This is a, a problem between two people or between organizations or or between ideas that has been brewing for much 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 longer. And so again, it just makes you wonder like where all these things started and and how things evolved over time. And uh, I'm curious if you if you ever came across any of those. Um, dealings with maybe Rocco or or other key American figures during your during your research. I, I mean, I've talked to Rock Lock Rocco before. Um, very interesting person, and I think he makes very. interesting points. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely not boring in a good interview, I'm sure. Um, um, you know, and I think um, well, my training reporters that everyone's got an agenda and everyone's got something they're after, and of course. that goes to Rocco too. So um, there's more than more than meets the eye always. But um, I do think that some of the ways the U.S. soccer has been run um, seems uh, designed to benefit a small number of people to the detriment of many others. Um, it's a kind of a different sort of irregularity than the corruption um, that FIFA is so expert at. Um, this is this doesn't seem necessary to be one of these sort of bribes and dit for tat kinds of deals, and much more sort of a clubbish situation where um, some people get to be part of the club and some don't, and and those who are in the club are uninterested in letting other people in. Um, and I think that uh, Rocco and others strongly believe people like Hope Solo and others strongly believe that um, that structure um, is to the detriment of soccer in this country as a whole. Um, that by by keeping this sort of um, special relationship between MLS and uh, soccer United marketing, the marketing arm of MLS um, and the U.S. Soccer Federation, keeping them in this sort of 
iron triangle, so to speak, um, and keeping everyone else um, kind of removed from it, you're hurting the sport in general in the country, um, and that you're you're interfering with development of players and um, fandom and other things. And I mean, I, I I I'm not a sports economist or an expert. Um, there's compelling aspects to that argument, but I'm I'm not sure. What I do know is that it's fairly unique. Almost basically, no other country in the world has an arrangement like that. Um, and there's other irregularities as well. I mean, for example, you have teams like Toronto playing in in uh, Major League Soccer, which is, um, you know, we've seen that in baseball and basketball as well, but in this country. But if you look around the world, there really aren't instances where um, the professional league in one country has teams from another country playing in it. Um, I suppose the only exception I can think of perhaps is the French League where Monaco plays in that league. Um, but that's sort of a weird anachronism and unusual uh, thing. So the number of exceptions that the U- that U.S. soccer gets to have that where it breaks from the sort of the codified rules the rest of the world has to follow are notable. Ken, for not being a, a soccer guy, you seem to be pretty well versed in, in some of the most important issues in American soccer and global soccer. And, and it, one of the notes that I wrote down when, when we first started talking is you kind of mentioned that you're an investigative journalist and, and you know, your first assignment was to write this piece about Chuck Blazer. And from there, things kind of snowballed and, and got you to the point where, where you've written this book now. But as you kind of in, investigate you know, the soccer side and then the business side, you realize that there's no, there's no separation between those two. So you don't necessarily need to be a sports guy or a sports person to, to be interested in, in how the business side of this can impact millions, if not billions of people. And I'd be curious to, to kind of know like how, how you've reacted or, or maybe maybe reacted is probably not the best word, but how, how you've come to kind of learn or appreciate the sport itself versus the business side of things and how everything's intertwined. That's a kind of a weird question or weird way to ask it, but Uh maybe just your reaction to that, that comment that I made. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry. I don't don't quite get it. Yeah. Me neither. (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah. Just just your, your reaction to like how intertwined like the sports and the business side of things are and how you don't necessarily need to be a sports person to you know understand or appreciate the the bigger global impact or, or impact it has on the country yeah i mean i see so I, I think that it's true i came into this this book project not knowing that much about the sport but of course you know trying to do a good job i immersed myself in it and read as much as i could and traveled and talked to a lot of people from a lot of different countries on backgrounds about the sport and trying to understand it and one thing that became really clear to me is that you know in a way, my background as a business reporter was incredibly helpful um, because understanding soccer as a sport in isolation, I think, is um, an illusion. It really isn't that way. And it's critical to understand that it's um, it's as much a business as it is a sport. And um, those two things are really inseparable. And um, uh, as an economic force, you know, it may not be as giant as um, Facebook or Amazon or the car makers, but it's a pretty big economic force generates a lot of money that um, has a, a, a huge economic and political impact in a lot of countries around the world. And the, while in the U.S. Its, its political impact may not be so great, it has a much larger economic footprint than people realize in this country. 
Um, and a, a huge amount of money is generated here, which is why, by the way, all those friendly matches are constantly happening in the U.S. You know, I mean, when you see um, Argentina play um, Guatemala in Los Angeles, um, it's not an accident. Neither of those countries, you know, you're not, you're not playing in Argentina or Guatemala. They're playing in the U.S. And they're not going to play that game um, in Mexico either. They're going to play it here because that's where the most economic um, output can come from a match. And everyone wants to play here. There's just more money involved. and um, you, you realize that for, for a lot of people involved, there's an enormous amount of money at stake and a lot of fortunes have been made based on this game, fortunes both legitimately and illegitimately. One of the things this case has brought forward is it's pretty hard to, to, to figure out where to draw the line between legitimate and illegitimate soccer business, unfortunately. One of the questions that I had written down or notes I had written down coming into this interview was, was friendlies, and I put a question mark next to it. And so I'm glad that you brought it up. Should mm-hmm. should people be keeping a closer eye on on friendlies and and the business that happens with friendlies? Is is that something that was a red that became a red flag as you were doing your research and investigations? Yeah, I mean, friendlies came up absolutely. Friendlies have um, friendlies uh, have been definitely corrupted um, over the years and continue to be corrupted. Um, you know, um, uh, there were numerous people indicted and who pled guilty in the case who um, took money. Um, from people to organize uh, friendlies in certain places um, or to cede the, the rights, the television or sponsorship rights to friendly matches um, to certain marketing companies, um, which tends to be the way that corruption works. You know, that that um, some some entrepreneur or some television uh, uh, or somebody wants the rights to some sort of match. And so they... They pay bribes um, uh, to soccer officials in order to get them. Um, that's sort of your classic pattern of, of how this stuff happens. Um, you know, there's other, there's just, there's interesting stuff that revolves, revolves around friendlies that hasn't um, totally been made clear what's going on. Um, but, and, and so I want to, I'm going to describe something, but I want to be clear that I've never seen evidence that it's corrupt, but um, it's certainly one that. Um, many people notice. So I mentioned earlier MLS and Soccer United Marketing. Well, Soccer United Marketing owns the rights to Mexico, the Mexican national teams, friendlies when they're played outside of Mexico. Um, so they don't own the right to the Mexican teams' games that count, the qualifying games for the World Cup or for the Gold Cup, for example. They don't own those rights. But when Mexico, and they don't own the rights to friendlies within Mexico, but when Mexico plays friendlies outside of Mexico, then soccer data marketing has the rights to them. Well, as I said earlier, everyone wants to play in the U.S. And guess where Mexico plays virtually all of its friendlies? It plays them inside the U.S. And so every time that the Mexican national team plays a match in the U.S., be it in San Antonio or Miami or Los Angeles um, or San Diego, you'll see a totally sold-out stadium because there's a huge population of Mexican-Americans in this country. Um, and you realize that soccer data marketing is the one who's making uh, most of the money off of it. It's very interesting, and and it's something that not 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 necessarily on the on the Mexican soccer front that became a a hot topic during the presidential election, the U.S. soccer presidential election recently, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but more so with the MLS teams and the the franchise owners and the stadiums that they operate in. Well, then it it kind of became obvious that that is where. The majority of U.S. soccer, uh, U.S. soccer friendlies and U.S. soccer meaningful games 
World Cup qualifiers and, and other things, Gold Cup games, that's where those are being hosted. So people started to kind of wake up to the fact like, hey, you know, these guys are, are almost double dipping. They own an MLS franchise and then they're also getting, you know, first dibs on all these friendlies and World Cup qualifiers. And, and they're just, you know, lining their own pockets. And what, who, who's the guy that the second division team, Steve Malik, I believe. Is the guy he got a couple you know friendlies in in North Carolina where, and and that one really makes you scratch your head because of all the stadium requirements and all the other things that 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 are you know in the pro league standards that rule other people out and then all of a sudden this ten thousand person stadium is hosting a, a international women's tournament and men's friendlies and things it's just like what like it it makes no sense so. I'm I'm glad you brought up the, the the Mexican soccer point too because that's that's less talked about. But I think people are starting to wake up to to these facts. Uh, how how have you kind of gauged the reaction to to some of these things? Um, you know, I think there is an intent. The U.S. soccer fan base is is interesting because I don't you know it's still the the fourth largest sport in the country fourth or fifth sort of in a battle with hockey right and um after baseball or after football basketball and baseball i guess um in that order um and um um so it's it's in this you know um it's 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 still sort of in the second tier in terms of general popularity but the fan base around it is very intense um you know i mean clearly there's intense football and baseball and basketball fans as well but i see a real high level of intensity and passion among the fan base and maybe that's because it's smaller and so the people feel a little bit like a uh, you know an unprotected minority or something and they really <laughs> have a louder voice <laughs> it's a yeah. very strong and passionate fan base and so and they're very they're very closely attuned not just the sporting issues but also the political uh issues and to some degree the economic issues around the sport um and so um i find that um i find that very interesting and i think that puts a lot of pressure on the leadership of the sport to to pay attention and i think um i think that's good you know i i look at the way the sport is run in europe and south america and you have a massive and incredibly uh vocal community as well covering it so there's pressure there too um and and much more so and those the fas in those countries really you know are are under the spot under the spotlight all the time well they don't have a spotlight all the time here but they do have those who are paying attention really scrutinizing um the challenge there is to get larger numbers of people to care and i think the people who run the sport are cognizant of the fact that um um that they can get away with stuff um yeah because of that well yeah one of the things i've mentioned on the podcast before and something i've i've been really interested in in and just keeping a closer eye on is that the people that have operated as officials of us soccer for, for decades, they've kind of operated outside of that spotlight that you mentioned that, that is on, you know, the same positions in other countries. And here they kind of just fly under the radar and they have for a long time until probably more recently when, when things took a wrong turn, when we didn't make the world cup, when this um, corruption case goes, goes public and, and just, you know, it's kind of been like a domino effect now where they aren't operating necessarily out of the spotlight, but still not entirely in the mainstream in the eye of the mainstream, which is this very unique place to be in. And soccer fans, like you mentioned, there, there is a very, very diehard, um, 
group of of American soccer fans that are in tune with all these problems and that that group is only growing from what I can see and they're only becoming more and more vocal and you know having guys like you that are that are doing work like this book red card and and articles and and investigations and and things like that are only going to amplify the the amount of uh intensity i think is the word that you used for the american soccer fan base yeah i think that's i think that's right you know i think look like many things you can be totally and i'm not saying i'm taking sides in any issue but you can be you can be totally right about an issue but if your voice isn't loud enough um, you might you might not win, right? And so sometimes it's the it's the loudest, most powerful voice that wins the day. And right now, um, we're in a situation where I think the balance is starting to change. For many decades, basically, the people who ran the sport um, thought they were only answerable to a very small constituency, basically the people who went to the annual general meeting, if that. Um, and I think uh, as the as the fan base grows in this country, and the number of people who care about it and pay attention grows there's going to be more pressure on the people who run the sport to address the issues they care about. And I think, you know, um, um, over the long period of time, um, that's going to benefit, benefit fans. But uh, there's also going to be some, still some frustration because there's a lot of old systems put in place that people don't want to change. Um, I see that in FIFA as well, right? The Department of Justice shook this place up really badly in FIFA and, and, you know, put people in prison and scared the pants off people. But, the next generation that came in kind of one of the same deal as the previous people and um, their resistance to the kind of transparency that's necessary is notable. Ken, I want to, I want to end with just uh, with two questions. One of them, one of them is a quick one. So I'll save that for last, but at the end of every interview, I try to ask people um, what do, what do listeners or what do people need to know? And I feel like your perspective on that will, will be very unique and very different from any other answer that I've, I've received in the past. So what do you think people need to know? And you can take that question, answer it however you see fit. What do people need to know about the, about the problems in the sport or what? Your book, the problems in the sport, American soccer, global soccer. What, what do you think people need to know just in general, I guess? Um, you know, I think they need, to, they need to understand sort of what I said before, but this is a, very global sport and um and it's also a big business and um these things don't operate in a vacuum and um the decisions that the people who run the sport make tend to be oriented around around business and i think um even if the sport cleans up its its corruption problem you're still going to be seeing decisions made with a um with a business focus first. And um, uh, sometimes that's going to feel like it, ta- it, it takes the sport away from the people who care the most about it. Um, but understanding how it operates and understanding how it's a business first and foremost, I think is going to help fans um, appreciate the nuances of that better. Um, I don't mean to flog my book too much, but I do think uh, one thing that, that possibly makes it stand out a little bit is the emphasis on it. Uh, um, it's uh, on the understanding the mechanics of the business behind it. I think that's appreciating that is really helpful. So books like Red Card and others that really um, uh, open up the hood and show how the gears are turning are helpful to appreciating that. Absolutely. And and uh, where where can people find 
you, where can they connect with you if they have either questions or, or, or thoughts or comments and where can they find your book? Um, so, um, I'm available. I'm, I'm fairly active on soccer issues on Twitter. Um, uh, I mean, I'm not, you're not, if you want to see the score of the latest MLS match, probably don't look to my Twitter, but if you want to know um, about the nonsense that's happening right now in South America with the Copa Libertadores and how, um, they had to cancel a match because of violence and trying to, trying to figure out what, where to play it. I might be, I might be available for that. Um, so my Twitter account is at Ken Bensinger. That's K E N B E N S I N G E R. Um, and my DMS are open there. So feel free to reach out to me there. Um, and, um, uh, in terms of the book, um, it's available at, uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and any other sort of uh, a big retailer of books and small ones if they don't have it if you have a local bookstore feel free to go and ask for it and they should be able to order it um if there's listeners overseas it's available in, in multiple different countries it's available in the uk it's available in um um belgium and holland uh in italy in um spain and most of latin america um it's available in portugal and soon gonna be available in japan as well Awesome. Ken, I, I appreciate your time. And, and on behalf, of, I think, of a, of a lot of people, I appreciate your work in, in investigating these types of things and, and covering topics like you cover, because I feel like this is very, very important for the future of not only global soccer, but more specifically American soccer, which we all, we all love and, and want to see. Just we want to see our country succeed. So I, I yeah, I, I mean, think I, you do. I, I, I think there's a good future for soccer in this country, right? We're going to have the World Cup shared with Canada and Mexico in 2026. And I think we're seeing clubs, the incredible success of clubs like Atlanta United um, suggest that there's, there's a lot more to come in this country. But, you know, I do think at some point there's going to be a a day of reckoning for, um, for us soccer and and it's going to have to um, maybe listen more to more people. That's my sense. All right, thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast. And a big, huge thank you to Ken Benzinger for donating some of his time to talk about his book, Red Card, and some of the activities that are happening here on American soil and elsewhere in the world in regards to football and the corruption that goes along with it. If you are interested in finding more episodes of the 343 Podcast, or if you are interested in learning about more of the benefits of the program that helps to support and fund this podcast that you just listened to. You can find all of that at 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 343, the word coaching, all spelled out, .com. To tell you a little bit more about his experience with one of our online programs, here is Tom Beyer. And I can tell you, after someone who's done a lot of coaches' education, both as a student as an instructor, that you will learn more by watching one or two of their videos that you might learn on any full-time course. Because the, the one thing that I liked about what they're presenting is, again, it's simplicity, man. It's very simple. It's not a lot of, you know, complicated words. It makes sense. And it goes right directly to the heart of, of, of the game on, on, on how, to, how to develop. Um, not just, you know, individual players, but develop teams as well. 
Once again, you can find all of that information by going to and visiting 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 343, the word coaching, all spelled out, dot com. All right, we will catch you guys next time here on the 343 Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting the work that we do. 